1: one from National
0: Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular?
1: <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of rusties taking trips to Europe?
0: We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films...
1: I'm Andy Nelson, and that over there is Pete Wright. Hey, everybody. Each month on the next Reels Speakeasy, we invite a guest from the film industry to join us, and instead of serving up their favorite cocktails, they serve up movies that they love so that we can all talk about them. This month, we have two guests from the world of animation, the Bancroft Brothers, a.k.a. Tom and Tony Bancroft. From an early age, both Tom and Tony loved drawing and were passionate about the world of animation. So, they both pursued this passion at California Institute of the Arts, a Disney-sponsored art college that has turned out some of the greats. They both thrived there and, after graduation, found themselves hired into Walt Disney Feature Animation as animating assistants, helping on projects like The Roger Rabbit Short Roller Coaster Rabbit and the feature The Rescuers Down Under. As they both developed and improved as animators, they found themselves bringing to life such memorable characters as Cogsworth the clock from Beauty and the Beast, Iago the parrot in Aladdin, young Simba and Pumbaa from The Lion King, Pocahontas from Well, Pocahontas, Mushu from Mulan, Kronk from The Emperor's New Groove, Took from Brother Bear, and many, many more. Lilo and Stitch anyone? Tony also co-directed Mulan, for which he received an Annie Award for Director of the Year from ASIFA International. After working at Disney for a dozen years, they each ended up heading out to try other areas of animation. Tom ended up working with Big Idea Productions as a character designer and director for the Veggie Tales series, while Tony worked as an animation director on Stuart Little 2. They both continued working hard in various capacities in the animation world, writing books that many animators consider essential to the craft, and hosting an amazing podcast of their own, the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast. Tony is currently directing an independent CG animated feature called Animal Crackers, which should be coming out in 2017, and Tom is now artist-in-residence for Lipscomb University in Nashville, and is the acting head of the animation program. Welcome to the show, guys. Glad to have you on board. Wow, what a nice little intro. Thank you, Andy.
2: I love that intro. It's so silky smooth. Man, you guys are pros. I could tell. Oh, you. It's
0: pretty rare that it happens as smoothly as that. Nice to be here, Andy and Pete. Thanks for having us. Oh, we started. <laughs> uh, we're thrilled to have you. Thrilled to have you guys here, mostly because uh, I'm an only child, and I like to be exposed to to siblings anytime I can. Because oh. uh, you know my deep seated family issues. It's <laughs> hey, it's it's overrated. Overrated. <laughs> <Pete>. <laughs>
2: yeah. Tom so and I dream of having that life. <laughs> this
0: is uh, this is a first for us because we have uh, we've never had two people on the speakeasy. Because Because uh, we just assumed that they could never agree on a favorite movie. But you guys happen to be uh, uh, unique. Our wives call us unique, so that's good. Um,
2: (laughs) Yeah, you know, Tom and I have a very, very similar background. You would say we were born in the same womb, or we shared. (laughs) A womb together womb and with that a first view. Word. <laughs> okay, it'll get better from now on. Hang anyway. um, But yeah, we, we we do have a very similar upbringing. As where we just we love to animate, we love to draw. Ever since we were very very young, like three years old, our mom has our this, the drawings that we did of Snoopy. We both did it. it. Was we were always very competitive. Mom, which one's better? You know that <laughs> kind of thing.
0: Uh, objectively, uh, who was better? Oh, well, me for oh, sure. Mom always thought me. Yeah, mom
2: always <laughs> thought No. Well, objectively is the word. She would always say, they're both equally nice. That's what she would say. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. Every time. Yes, she would always oh. say that about how her love for us, too. I love you both equally. <laughs> right, mom. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Tonight. Tony just pushed my head through the TV set, mom. Yeah. <laughs> now being a parent, I know that's a lie, okay? Because yeah. I definitely have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You know what I love about uh, uh, about your podcast and uh, and you guys is uh, speaking of your mom, you have that whole story uh, early on in your uh, in the series of your podcast episodes where you talk about your mom and yes. kind of the importance of uh, the Blue Lagoon in your lives, which is
2: <laughs> a, a very funny story. Now, very funny we'll story. have to do a speakeasy on the Blue Lagoon because <laughs> oh, uh, that's gosh. actually how we learned about sex ed. You're right; that's what you're alluding exactly. to. Exactly, we tell a story on our podcast about. <laughs> The first time our mom took us to a movie, an R-rated movie, was Blue Lagoon. And it was really just to, yeah. She was a single mom. And, you know, this was her way. We didn't have a yeah, dad to sit us down and have the guy talk. We You know, she had to do it. So we all liked movies. And Blue Lagoon came out. It's just tough. It's just tough halfway through, uh, you know, watching Brooke Shields and, um, and really enjoying the movie in a lot of different ways. And then your mom <laughs> leans over and says, do you guys have any questions? <laughs> do you know? Do you know that she's having her period right now? Do you
0: understand what's happening
2: here? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, Mom, yeah. We, we get it, Bob. That's okay in a marriage relationship. <laughs> yeah. They're not really brother and sister. <laughs> That's right. oh, it's so unspoken. Obvious.
1: So, so funny. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah, we'll do a Blue Lagoon speakeasy, all right?
1: That, that will be a real treat. I don't
0: know what I expected from that story. Like, half of me thought, you know, that you guys look over halfway through the movie and your mom has abandoned yeah. you there. That would have been nice.
2: No, no. It was her, her yeah, it was her <laughs> talking halfway through it, trying to uh, make sure that we were okay with coming of age as young men. And, and I remember that theater being like half empty or less, and like, like, Every word she said echoing in that theater. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. yeah she was very loud yeah
0: very loud yeah. well uh, we are we are here to talk about the uh, latent sexuality
1: in another film oh <laughs> hey, what a Disney movie <laughs> right? you guys didn't know you guys you guys didn't see this one. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> no but, but yes no instead of Blue Lagoon we are uh, we are here to talk about 101 Dalmatians a, a Disney classic and uh, yes! yeah, this is one you guys picked uh, so why did you guys pick this movie what is it about this one that said we really want to talk about that one well
2: because uh, Tom and I get, you know, we go to Disney Anna conventions, and what I love is when you get these young fans that always walk up to you and say, um, will you sign my 101 Dalmatian posters? And I'm like, uh, you know I didn't work on that, right? Uh, <laughs> really? Oh, okay. It then. came out in 1961. I was born in 1967. All right. Well, then you, you do well, you, Yeah. Will you uh, sign my Snow White then?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, not that it one either. 1938. <laughs> to, yeah. To be yeah. fair, the dates on those posters are really tiny. <laughs> yeah. They yeah. are, yeah.
2: And, and there's a lot of tiny brains. And, but it just it just shows the research. Yeah, it shows the research involved with uh, yeah our fan group. To go along with that, a lot of times we do get. I mean, that's the question you get the most, right? With any kind of filmmaker, but especially if you're an animator, and especially Disney animator. What's your favorite Disney movie, right? And so we, we kind of always had to have an answer because that has happened quite a yeah. few times. And I think Hundred One Dalmatians. Uh, and the funny thing is, we we never discussed it, uh, Tony and I. But I think Hundred One mm-hmm. Dalmatians became my favorite at a certain point, and I can't remember when it was, but somewhere around Cal Arts when I was going to attending Cal Arts, because to me, it's just the perfect meld of story, animation, style. Great, wonderful style. Mm-hmm. It's kind of got it all. I I have a lot of reasons for loving it. I uh, you know, and and I also like to copy Tom. So whenever he said, <laughs> "I love Hundred One Dalmatians," I was like, "Yeah, me too. I do too. <laughs> yeah, I did first. No, um, but it was um, it was a very very important film in the wall. You guys probably know this. You've done some probably looking up of trivia items on it already, but. Uh, in the history of the Walt Disney Company, which Tom and I worked there for over 12 years in feature animation. You know, we worked on uh, the later films of the 90s, you know, so your kid's childhood. But for us, uh, 101 Dalmatians was something that we looked at, not when it came out in the theaters, but we discovered it more on, you know, direct-to-video and watching it um, and probably re-releases and things like that. But such an inspiration of how, how the Nine Old Men, some of those great traditional animators, with just pencil and paper, good old fashioned pencil and paper uh, created works of art, really created characters that that jump off the screen and uh, for us as young young animation students it was so inspirational.
1: Well, and this was uh, you know, some people say it was kind of the first modern Disney film, uh, at least relatively speaking. I mean, the the story takes place in 1958 and the movie came out in 61. So to that end, it, you know, I mean, there's cars, there's TV. I mean, you've got all these puppies that are, you know, just like modern children, all, you know, good children addicted to their televisions, <laughs> which I, yeah. I just, I get a crack. I crack up about that every time I see it. And smoking, lots of smoking. There's lots of smoking. I like how they delineate, you know, Roger's smoking is nice and clean and pure white, whereas Cruella's is that vile, yellowish green. Yeah, gray. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. With her with her, yeah. with her pink cigarettes
0: in particular the, there's there is a you know adult uh, affection i joked about latent sexuality but their their relationship is uh, you know we have these sort of paired relationships between the dogs and and the couple and it is a, a mature relationship they are affectionate with each other they touch one another like sort of mature adult people right. and it's I, I found that fascinating
2: i think it's it's funny that uh, you know most people at disney especially when we were there in the 90s and it seems like a kind of the cycle of uh, the lifespan of an animator is once you become kind of mature in your your art. There's this striving to do something more adult, you know, not X-rated necessarily, but we all go through it. I want to make an uh, you know an animated version of Frankenstein or something like that. Why aren't we doing Star Wars? You know, every animator's kind of screamed that to some point. And for me, I think Hanawan Dalmatians* was. Um, the nine old men, the guys that were there, they were at their peak in, as an adult. So not not quite the nine old men that we know them as in pictures where they're really old guys. But they're, I think 101 Dalmatians was their urging of, let's do something more modern. Let's do something that was maybe a bit more edgy too. And so I think what you're alluding at is are things that they probably were desiring to do, but they they were stuck in the rut of doing these fairy tales for so many years. And you you certainly can see it in the style, too. Um, they were all influenced by, uh, by uh, UPA style, um, which is uh, a lot more blocky, like Gerald McBoing Boing and things like that. And that 60s kind of retro style that was, well, we call it retro now, but that was real popular in commercials and things like that. And you were starting to see, you saw that in uh, Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom that Ward Kimball directed for Disney. Um, and that started to find its influence finally with this movie. Into the feature films, too. And that uh, and, and even Pablo Picasso and things like that. But uh, especially Ronald Searle. Ronald Searle was a big influence in the style of this film. You see that in the commercials, actually, you know, when they they have uh, the commercials and there's also that little talk show that they do at the end, which I love, which is um, um, something like. Uh, oh, yeah you know, guess the robbery or guess guess the crime crime, or something like that. Guess my crime, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's some made up little show, right? Like this is your life kind of thing, but with criminals on there. And if you look at all the designs of the characters and there's these like stuffy British folks that are like, "Uh, uh, were you a rapist? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. He didn't say uh, that. I don't think he actually, I don't think he actually says that. Uh, But you know, they're guests of the crimes. And these guys all look like Ronald, Ronald Searle, who's a very popular, illustrator, and cartoonist at that time. All of his designs are very much in those. Um, but the, the character design, which he, he was very influenced by Ronald Searle too, but the character design was mostly and largely at that time done by Milt Call, who was one of the 90 men. And Milt was known to be an excellent, excellent draftsman. Um, so the other animators would take a pass of the characters, but he would really do the final model sheets which is what we use in 2D traditional animation. He'd do, he do like Tony does. He's like, move over, let me get in here and do a drawing over that. This is how it's done. <laughs> let me done. show you
0: how this is done. Yeah. Yeah. That was my exactly. of nice <laughs> right. all the guys. He was the curmudgeon of the group. Oh yeah,
2: yeah. Nobody really liked him too much, except for Mark Davis, who was just I think he was just kind of a quiet teetotaler kind of a individual, very um, you know cerebral and that sort of thing. And I think he just but of, but I think it, I think it was also because Milt respected Mark because of his drawing ability. Like Mark Davis true. was probably, you know, equal or second to Milt Call in drawing ability. And Milt, Milt saw that and that's what he cared about, I think.
1: And it's such an interesting style because I mean they, you know, because Sleeping Beauty had cost so much money and didn't make very much money at the box office when it was initially released. Walt Disney was kind of you know in this panic, and they kind of his his old buddy Ub Iwerks comes up with this Xerox process of Xeroxing all this all the uh, the cells to make things uh, cheaper and quicker and easier. My understanding is that the animators really took to it because hey, it's my it's my actual lines up there on the screen as opposed to yeah you know somebody you know, in, in inking and painting who had kind of gone over it and redone it. Those are actually my lines. And Milt, from what I read, he seemed to kind of be the driving force behind really liking that sketchy look and, and not having his, his people under him erasing those lines and doing all the cleanup and everything.
2: Oh, yeah. Like yeah. when we were at CalArts, I'll tell a little story. We, we are Dave Mitchner was the head of the CalArts animation program for that one year kind of in between two other people. And Dave Michener would tell stories because he was Milt Kahl's assistant for many years, uh, cleanup assistant. Like, he would go over Milt's stuff. And I can't remember if 101 Dalmatians was one of hit the films, but I know he would always talk about Jungle Book. So um, I'm assuming he worked on 101 with Milt also. But um, And he would talk about doing all those stripes on Shere Khan, you know, cleaning up every single one and keeping them consistent and all that. Um, but, yeah, he talked about how Milt would would uh, even people he liked, like I think he got along with Dave Michener, but uh, he would literally throw drawings at, uh, at his cleanup assistants and, and throw them out of his room uh, because they're made of paper. So (laughs) it didn't hurt that much, much. but But a nasty paper cut. (laughs) But that's a lot of work, Tony. Okay. Yeah. that could have been a week's worth of work anyway, because he just, you know, he was a perfectionist and nobody could draw as well as him and he knew it. And he would let you know. So, wow. so him wanting to go right directly to his drawings, yeah, it kind of makes sense that he would uh, not have to go through that pain and agony of throwing papers at people. But, you know the other the other person that was that was really huge in the making of that movie stylistically, um, because Milt really contributed to the character design, but the background design and that Xerox xerography style that they adapted uh, was uh, really the production designer, or maybe he's credited as the art director, Walt Paraguay. Walt Paraguay, and talk about, um, he was like, attitude-wise, milk call um, without caffeine. So, even more of a curmudgeon, a bigger, you know, cursor. This guy was like a, a true animation sailor. Um, <laughs> but Walt Paraguay is known to be, yeah, one of the most frightening. He's he's passed now, uh, unfortunately. But, but he was a, a very frightening individual because he would just yell and scream and, and complain about everything. But he was also a really great um, background painter and designer. He did a lot of the styling alongside of Ivan Earl. He was the head of backgrounds um, on Sleeping Beauty. You were mentioning that a moment ago. Um, And he set the style and he was the color stylist for um, 101 Dalmatians. And and you could imagine around that this time period we're talking about 1961 is when it released so um, you know it would be uh, late late 50s um, Bernie Fuchs was probably coming to age there was a lot of illustrators and magazines that these guys were influenced by that had this kind of rougher stylistic approach and so the xerography. And u- utilizing that, that rough line and displacing it. I mean, you see in the backgrounds, they didn't do this with the characters so much. But the backgrounds, they literally drew a drawing of, of the background in pencil, Xeroxed that, and, and then painted roughly uh, blocky shapes and stuff to represent the color shapes of, say, a couch or the living room. And then they offset the line drawing on top on the cell. And it gave you this kind of very stylistic, rough look. To the background, and yet the the characters, even though they had a rough line, were still pretty solid looking. So it almost gave you a feeling, in a very modern stylistic way, of an out of focus background or something like that, because the there was a Christmas to the characters. And, and that had never been never been done before. It was so groundbreaking, and it was a faster uh, technique too. Like they were able to put out 101 Dalmatians at a lot cheaper price tag um, because yeah. of. A lot of shortcuts there's a lot of holds too, stuff that they wouldn't normally do in animation where the character would just freeze you see it in tv animation a lot but they do that a little bit more in 101 dalmatians they're careful
1: about it and but, some repeating uh, I, too i noticed yeah 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 there's that scene I mean, that you see
2: in the in the um i just watched it a moment ago too, just to refresh my memory and i couldn't remember i couldn't believe how many repeat scenes there was where they reused the animation but they're um uh what's his name uh, the Gosh. Roger. Roger is yeah. It has Pongo on a leash in the beginning of the film, and they're going through the park, and they literally do the same gag twice. You know, where <laughs> yeah. he's like trying to trying yeah. to start his pipe and light his pipe, and then all of a sudden he gets pulled by Pongo. Right, right. And they reuse that animation almost like a second later, and I'm like, come on, guys, really? I know you want to save money, but come on. <laughs> hey, it worked. Huh? It worked.
0: Get- The uh, yeah. Well, I mean, in terms of cheaper, I think they did it with, uh, you know, half the staff. Right. I mean, Andy, did you find that uh, they had 600 people on on Sleeping Beauty and 300 on this one?
1: Yeah, that's what it Uh, sounded like. So they really did chop it up. I think there was there was layoffs in between, if I remember right.
0: I want to. I'm just curious on your perspective uh, in the industry about how big a transition it really was from hand drawn and and inking to this Xerox thing. Are we talking like uh, the the earth shattering shift of, of you know silent films to talkies? Is it that kind of a paradigm shift? How does how did that work? It, you know, it's not that big, but
2: amongst that group with, within that studio, it was probably pretty huge. And that one, it gave a totally different look. Um, that I think anybody can notice if you look, if you compare the two, um, but also it meant, uh, a, a totally different pipeline now. So they now, no longer did they need the, uh, inkers, uh, they still needed the painters. They would still paint the backs of the cells, but the inking part of it, the hand inking with the, the nibs and all that. That disappeared. You didn't need that anymore. And that was a real art form too. I mean, if you've ever seen hand inked uh, cells that they sell in auction for, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars. It's just beautiful. And what a crafted thing that is. But um, Tom and I, when we first started at Disney, we got a tour of the ink and paint department. And for this film, Walt had built uh, a Xerox room. Now we've all we're all old guys with gray hair, so we know what a Xerox machine looks like. And hopefully, the listeners out there, some of them have actually seen them. They're gone now for the most part, but <laughs> it's like an Epson printer, but bigger. Um, yeah, a huge. But back then, they didn't have those those big printer machines. This was like on the forefront, and they actually had built a room. And it was so the process of xerography was almost like uh, exposing photos, where they had they had a, a room where uh, somebody worked in this dark room and almost Andy, it almost looked like your room right <laughs> yeah. now. I'm looking at you and there's like, you're in the most pitch black room that I've ever seen before. And, and it makes me scared for you, but they had this room where it's like uh, one person would be in there and they would have uh, a metal plate come in and they would have to electrostaticize it or however they did that. I remember this yeah. tour from, I must've been like 18. So I'm so forgive me if it's not fresh, but, There was this whole very elaborate process of making, of getting the the toner onto the cells. And it was so archaic to what we know as the the modern day Xerox machine. Um, But it was all designed and built. And the inked painters, some of them adapted over since they were losing their jobs of not being able to ink anymore. Some of them adapted to run those positions of making... You know, putting the Xerox line on. And, and you know what's funny is when they when they built the uh, Disney MGM Studios, we they, I worked at the Florida studio, and Tony was there the first oh, year too. And uh, they created a, a Xerox machine there. Same thing, like huge camera that pointed down, has a platinum, uh, and has the trays that go from one room to the next. And uh, and literally within probably uh, two years, we no longer did that anymore. It was all painted on the computer. So they only used it for like maybe one picture. I think Prince and the Pauper, Little Mermaid was the last, um, uh, right? Last Xeroxed uh, cell. It was the last cell film. Last cell, yeah. And then everything after that was their new computer aided yeah. ink and paint system. It was all computers. So they didn't they no longer needed that uh, that big huge machine. So.
1: I was actually working uh, I, I, I think I told you guys I worked on that tour as a as a as a uh, as a guide. Oh were you? When I was down yeah, down in Florida I was uh, I was a, a, a an attractions host for uh, the college program. Oh, and, okay. oh, oh,
2: so you had to call them guests. We, That's right. we called them tours. You called them tourists, right? I called them <laughs> yeah. guests. But,
1: but it's funny because I worked yeah. there on the other side of the fish tank and, you know, we would stare at you guys all day long. And that section was what a job. was always empty. And it just was, you know, people would always ask about it and am like, no, nobody is ever really in there. <laughs> it's just like yeah. the big empty ink and paint part of the tour, you know? It was it's funny that it was still there, but you know, I guess, uh, I guess times changed a lot quicker. That's just a the
2: dinosaur talking. we keep over there. <laughs> did
0: exactly. they just have taps playing over this loudspeaker <laughs> yeah. the whole time, just <laughs> subtly in the background?
2: They, they figured if yeah, if they kept it long enough, maybe they could drill for oil <laughs> in that area. I don't know. But, yeah.
1: The um, I you know, I was just looking. Walt Paraguay was the color styling, or credited as color styling. Yeah, working with Ken Ken Anderson, who did art direction and production design. Yeah, I didn't want to
2: correct Tony, but I, I really do. So yeah, it's Ken Anderson that was credited as art director and, um, and production, uh, uh, right? Production uh, design.
1: Yeah, production, production design. design.
2: Yeah. So, but Walt's the one that takes credit for it. I've actually read interviews where he said, I saved Disney productions. If it wasn't for me working there all through the 60s and 70s, I really created their style. Yeah. That Xerox thing, that was me. And That's that Ken so Anderson, he, he just took all the credit. Yeah, no, I, th- I think yeah. I have heard him say that. Oh, he calls Walt Disney a loser. He said, if it wasn't for all of us artists, Walt Disney would be nothing, nothing. Wow,
1: how funny. What an interesting character to work with Walt. Only he would put the (laughs) F word in there, too. Well, interesting
2: commentary, particularly on
0: this film, judging by reportedly how little Disney had to do with it himself. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, he wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't involved. Well, Maybe that's why he took credit. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. Walt Paraguay, he had an open door. Um, no, but this was the era when Walt was very involved with the parks and stuff yeah. like that. There was several movies that he just kind of started to check out and feature animation. And, the, you know, I, you hear stories from the animators and stuff like that, besides Walt Paraguay, that they kind of bitter a little bit towards that time because they, that you know, Walt was like a father figure that was, you know, very invested in everything that they were dur- doing early on. But then once kind of the ball was rolling, he wanted to expand into parks
1: and other things. So he got involved with And TV. He was getting right, into yeah. TV. and, oh, and TV.
2: TV. Yeah. Yeah. Live action Wonderful movies. Wonderful world of color. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. It's interesting because it, it it sounded like he really didn't like this style at all and kind of felt like the beauty of the animation that they had been doing is all gone. And it sounded like he kind of blamed Ken Anderson for a long time. Uh, the way that Ken says it's like pretty much, you know, up until a couple of weeks before his death when he saw. Walt uh walking around and Walt kind of forgave him. So it, it, I guess it took a while, but you know, I don't know. It's an interesting style of animation and I know it has its uh, you know, it's uh, fans and it has its detractors, but I've always loved this uh, this xerography style, the the very sketchy look of it. I think it's just such an interesting way to do it and and it does feel so different. I mean, it, it lasted for what about 10 years or so up through up until yeah, kind of the new age with Black Cauldron or so, right? You had Aristoc-
2: Aristocats, uh, Jungle Book, uh, Robin Hood. Sword in the Stone. Sword and the Stone. Hood. They, they the all used that, that same process, yeah. yeah. Well, because it, it saved them so much money. You were saying that earlier, Andy, and it's true. It's that once they created this new process and laid off all those inkers, it wasn't just about saving the money on the inkers, too. It was It was just a faster process. And I think, like you were also saying, I think the animators got a kick out of it that now for the first time their drawings were up on the screen yeah I mean you think uh, milk call had an ego already come on <laughs> now he's a rock now he's a rock star that's and right, you really right. saw a shift I mean just to get in the detail of it around I'd say Oliver and company because that still had that chunky line to it a little bit but you started uh-huh. seeing that the cleanup artists really started coming into their own and then the line work and Tony and I both did cleanup on our, our first films mine was rescuers done under actually both of us did clean up yeah, on man. rescuers down under. And so I'm sitting right next to you, Tom. Yeah, that? right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was erasing your drawings for you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's not right. Like this. Fixing them. No, uh, no, no let me uh, do it. <laughs> I was fixing them. Yeah, uh, But anyway, you know, by about Little Mermaid, the cleanup, cleanup became really more of an art form, kind of like inking paint did or the inking did earlier in, in the 40s. And so you started not noticing that. We still were doing the same Xerox kind of a process all the way to say, you know, like I said, Little Mermaid. But I don't think people look at Little Mermaid and go, oh, that doesn't look as nice as some of right. the classic films. But they will say that about Hunter 1 or Aristocats or Robin Hood because it is. it's They were using just like the pure rough animation line. Just tied they They called it tightening it up. They would kind of... Put, take a needed eraser to the animators line and, and just add some cleaner tighter lines to say yeah instead of these six lines it's it's these two <laughs> you
1: know right right, and, right. but it would still be kind of chunky is know? that the in-betweener I, I get confused with all these uh, these animation titles is that is that an in-betweener or the cleanup department comes after
2: animation and they they are doing in-betweens and keys they're doing all the drawings but yes they are adding the in-betweens in a lot of cases but they're doing the final line um, gotcha. And like I said, in By Around, Roger Rabbit, and Mermaid, they were laying a piece of paper over the rough animation and doing a whole nice, clean, tight line drawing and adding detail where needed and that kind of thing. That process back on 101 w- wasn't really the same. They were literally using the same drawings the animators would do and maybe kind of knock them back with an eraser and tighten them up a little bit. Um, but they, you still had the animator's drawing that was getting... Syrox yeah. as the line work, uh, about by Mermaid and, and a little bit uh, before that, they were putting a piece of paper over it and redrawing it completely in a nice tight line. And that's what really made it kind of go to the next level of being a little tighter line.
0: Well, you know, and that's actually a really interesting note because uh, in in many ways, the style that sort of 60s industrial chic style uh, was very forgiving for 101 as a transitional piece, right? I mean, you're already offset yeah. the color of the background. You're already looking at what look like construction marks, uh, you yeah. know, in just the background and the multi-planar camera and all these kinds of things. So just seeing a few extra sketch marks on the main character design is isn't doesn't cry foul in your brain i think
2: yeah and i I love it personally as an animator um i was just like i said i was watching it again today and you could see there are certain keys that the animator like key drawings key poses that the animator did that um the the cleanup person just kind of barely roughed out you know tied it down and just erased a little bit of the lines so there's sometimes where you'll see a circle you know show up in the head
0: you see a line under the eye to the nose on roger yeah yeah Yeah. construction construction lines construction stuff
2: and it's like you know that's that's normal for us when we do our animation tests and stuff that's what we kind of grew up on but to see that on the screen is really rare because even after 101 dalmatians they got more sophisticated with how they tied down the drawings and yeah. And like Tom said, they, they, they started to do another process where they put another piece of paper on because the animators were like, you're losing too much of my animation. My, the jewels are being lost. <laughs> and so they blame the cleanup people for losing too much of what they had created in their original drawing. So, you know, there's a whole political side too. But mm-hmm. I, I love this one because 101 Dalmatians just has, has a freshness to it. They were They were kind of trying to figure out how to make this look. Um, happen and you can even see some scenes where speaking of character design by milk call um, I remember there was the I've seen in books and stuff there was some earlier designs of Pongo and Perdita particularly Pongo where he was a lot thicker faced and uh, probably looked more like a um, a Labrador than than a Dalmatian no like more like a Great Dane yeah he had a big big muzzle big nose and um and I remember hearing that there was kind of a fight about that between Milt Call and I think it was either Frank Thomas or Ollie Johnson that was really pushing for this other look. And um, Milt had to go over a lot of the early drawings, the early scenes by Frank Thomas and those guys that were drawing it differently and said, no, it's got to be like this. And, and um, there, in the opening title sequence, there's still uh, Pongo that uh, is is all drawn in kind of rough drawings. He hasn't been filled in yet because in the it's got a great title sequence too. We could we could do a podcast just on the. I love the title sequence, but it kind of shows the style choices that they use through the the title sequence where they're introducing who did what and talking about Ken Anderson and giving credit. But there's one drawing of uh, Pongo that comes to life, and he's animating while it shows. All the key animators, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson, are being listed on the title, and and it's animating as he's kind of looking and nodding towards. And um, that one, that uh, that Pongo in particular, if you look at it, has a very big jaw. It's it's very reminiscent of one of the older Frank Thomas designs. There's, there's a couple scenes in there too. I noticed at the beginning of the film, you know, when when he's uh, going to get uh, Roger because he wants to take him on into the park to go yeah, help, right. go after the girl. And there's a couple of scenes in there that they didn't—they either didn't change enough or they just didn't change at all. And he has that big muzzle too, so there there is some of the old Pongo in a couple of scenes.
1: Well, now it's—it's—I um, mean, talking about all the different people involved in kind of coming up with these designs. Um, I mean, we we should mention that this is based on a novel by Doty Smith. And Bill Pete is actually the one that Disney kind of put in charge of doing the story and coming up with it. And it sounds to me like he was yeah. actually the only person who did story, which sounds kind of like a rarity. Um, yeah. But it sounds like he also, I, I my understanding is the way that it works in the world of animation. I mean, he might write the script, but then he also pretty much storyboards the entire thing. And he kind of came up with some of the character, the basics, the some of the foundations at the time, right? Is that is that how that worked?
2: Well. And here's the thing this is something that a lot of people don't know is there were no scripts back then. So when it says story by Bill Pete and you're right that is rare it's usually a, a a list of story artists but in this case it was just Bill Pete and the rumor is that he did most of if not all of it all the storyboarding but they don't write a script he would just then uh he may write an outline and maybe he shares that with Walt they discuss it whatever but basically he's writing the story in storyboard form by doing a bunch of drawings. Yeah, he was so prolific, and but he was the first one on too. So even before Ken Anderson and some of the other group that joined later to help develop the style and the look of it, um, Bill was already cranking away. And you hear some of the old guys talk about how they would go upstairs and see, you know, check out Hunter One Dalmatian that Bill was doing by himself, (laughs) and they were just amazed. You know, it was always very inspirational. There was there was very high regard for Bill Pete as a storyboard artist because he was such. He's prolific, yes, but he also created just fun bits of entertainment that animators love to animate.
1: Now, he was more he was more of a writer, not so much an animator. I guess that would be like, because I mean, he'd been around since like Pinocchio, right? But he's not one of the nine old men.
2: No, he's not, but he was a story guy. So what that meant was because there weren't scripts and, and really writing, it was a part of the process.
0: That didn't come to Michael Eisner, believe it or not. Um, wow! So, wow.
2: like in the eighties.
0: In eighties, yeah. yeah. So I I need a I need a judge's ruling on that though. How how do they know what to make the like when do the words come in mechanically? <laughs> like how do they know what to say?
2: The story artists would be adding the words. They they literally like were as writing they're animating? it. Well, the, that's the thing. They're not animating. They're doing like a comic strip
0: in storyboards. Okay.
2: So storyboards are like a uh, like a comic strip, right? But there's millions of them, right? And so, and they would write a little line underneath it to say, and then Bongo says this, and uh, so they're writing the no script way. as they're storyboarding it, and that process did not change until, uh, like I said, Michael Eisner came in and he said they got a pitch. Him and Jeffrey Katzenberg got a pitch when they first came in to took over Disney, basically, um, and they got a pitch of what was it, Great Mouse Detective? I think. Great mouse detective. And yeah. they pitched them the whole movie. It took them like three hours. Like here's a new board, and then a guy would walk around and pitch with a stick and <laughs> and tell the story Jeez. and go through it. Three hours later, they go into and, and, sort of, and Michael and Jeffrey are just like looking at each other, going, "What the heck is this?" They didn't know what they were seeing. Yeah, they go back to their office later, and Jeffrey's like, "Do you even know what the story was?" And Michael's like, "I have no idea." <laughs> they could they yeah. could not understand. I can't remember those first 10 boards. You know, that was like, you know, two hours ago, right? <laughs> These guys are short. So, like, wow. so, I mean, one that speaks to the brilliance of Walt. I will say that. I think that he was a story genius and that he could work like that. He could work with his people. He could retain things. He could, you know, think about it the next day and come in and say, you know, this sequence here. And, and again, it was a slower process, too. They would re-storyboard and re-storyboard. It wasn't like they'd just do it once. Um, and re- rework the the film, um, but from that point on, yeah, Jeffrey and Michael said, "No, no, no, we need scripts from here on out. You can storyboard and make changes and all that after the fact, but we need to start with a script."
1: And that's pretty much how it still goes now. They they'll write the script and then storyboard it out. Yeah, and and it it changes drastically. Um, sure, you know. sure.
2: And animation is unique in that regard, it, and and that's why I think it it existed that way for so long. Because the visuals are really key. You know, um, the characters don't exist in real life. As I hate to, you know, drop that bomb (laughs) on you. Hey, I've seen Roger Rabbit, man. Come on. So those drawings, those little, you know, little sketches to suggest kind of action and what's going on and expression and emotion are so key to making it come to life and the story to evoke some kind of emotional response. For Walt and for his artists, that's just how they thought. You know, they just thought in pictures. They started in the silent era, you know, when there was no dialogue. So it just kind of everything came out of that for them. And, um, but not for Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Kasseberg, who were TV guys, basically.
1: How, how did the three directors uh, split up tasks? I know the, the directors Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Lusk, and, and Wooly Reitherman um, who was one of the nine, nine old men, right? Yeah. Right. Um, how yeah, I mean, how does that work as far as like what they're doing? I, my understanding is it's kind of like they each have a sequence. Is that how it, it kind of gets split up when you're directing animation?
2: Yeah. Back in those days, they did have sequence directors all the way up to great mouse detective. Actually, you'll see three to four, um, directors oftentimes on some of the credits mm-hmm. and, um, and, and later on, uh, again, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Gasford kind of went against that and started to bring it down a little bit. But, yeah, sequence directors was kind of how they did it for a while where they would have – because Walt was kind of the story guy, like everybody just, you know, was subservient to what Walt wanted with the, with the story. But the other guys all came from animation for the most all, – all three of those guys were animators at one time. And so they all kind of grew up out of that. And their biggest job was to make sure that kind of the story that Bill, Pete and Walt came up with, that they kind of ushered it through the process to make sure that the design, the style and the animation was consistent. There's so many different departments and a lot of people don't think about that either. They only think about, well, I've heard of storyboarding and I've heard of animation, but you got the background painters and you got the layout artists that draw the backgrounds that the painters paint. Um, You know, you got, you can paint too. you have, the camera, camera moves and stuff like that, and the camera department. Effects animation, yeah. Effects animation. So the, the that's why even today you, you normally have for on an animated film at least two directors, because there's so many different departments and hundreds of different people, and they're all overlapping too. So you got to be like, you know, there's a scene in animation right now that's at the end of the film there's a scene over here that's in in background painting and it's from the beginning of the film, you know, there's some special effects being done. That's for the credit sequence. I mean, they're all going on simultaneous and you got to be able to go. All right. So they usually split up the directors too. So uh, at least in the sequence directing phase, like One Dalmatian, they would probably go, Oh, well, that's your sequence, Ham. You go look over there and, and Clyde, you're going to be in story today because that your sequence is being worked on in story because they had revisions you know and and that's how they would sort of split it up And you could keep three guys pretty busy over what, what did they make them every four years back then Every <laughs> yeah. not quite four years but it was it was there was long distances two years at least uh in between sometimes two to four years in between each film yeah wolfgang Rotherman, i think was known to be kind of the guy that would work with the voice talent and on this one um had some really special voices, you know. A lot of them came from, uh, you know, British films and actors like that. But um, I read a story somewhere online about uh, Anita, the voice of Anita. That's that's the wife to uh, Roger, you know, one of the humans. And she actually tried out for Cruella Deville, if you can imagine. So, when, and she actually read against Walt. Uh, in the story that I read said that it was Walt in, uh, that was helping to audition. For the film in the beginning, that's probably before he got pulled away and stuff and other stuff. But yeah, he had a read for um, Cruella and she just said, you know, I, don't, I think I'd rather try out for Anita. Is that okay? And then they reread her doing the whole script again with Anita and Walt loved it.
1: It's so funny how how things like that fall in, you know, these little happenstances like that. Because, I mean, Betty Lugerson who does Cruella, I mean, she's just, it's such an iconic character. And the way that she she speaks uh, I mean, and the, yeah. you know, it fits so perfectly with the way she acts and everything. I mean, it's just, she's so great. It's so fun to listen to her, her play that part. She's you know, the animators, most... animators, I'm sorry, go ahead,
2: Scott. No, 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 go ahead. All uh, right, Pete, I'm sorry. That's um, I'll
0: answer to whatever you call yeah. me.
2: Whoever Scott is. Scott, wherever you are, keep <laughs> going. Yeah, Scott, yeah. Because you have words of wisdom, Scott. Um, no, but what I was going to say. <laughs> that guy Pete, he's full of it. But Scott, you're on board, man. But what I was going to say was that animators get excited about voice talent and, and really good voices. Yeah. And Cruella would be a great example of that you know, they will just fight over those scenes. You know, I, I had that when I animated Mushu in Milan with Eddie Murphy. All his lines were gold. He didn't, you know, none of them were like, eh, there's not much going on in this line. You know, everything he was 100% on. I did a, I did a, a Kronk in Emperor's New Groove, Patrick Warburton. Once I heard his voice, I was like, I got to get on that character. <laughs> I want that character so bad because he was so awesome. But there, Tom's right, there's there's a richness in uh, vocal acting. Now, now for those that grew up in live action and you know don't know too much about animation, a lot of times studios in the past have tried to bring in big actors, you know, let's get Tom Cruise, he's an A-list actor and whatever. And I won't mention names of studios or executives that make those choices. But when Michael Eisner said, "Oh, no, go ahead." <laughs> but when <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey Katzenberg hired no. Um, but you know, so not every actor, just because they're a big talent and a big name and are, are bankable, doesn't mean that they could do good voiceover work. Because it really is trying to create a theater of the mind. They're they're trying to really. They have to be a little broader most of the time for animation. They, they, Two words: Matt Damon <laughs> <That's right. laughs> in *Spirit*. The
1: stallion of the Cimarron. Oh yeah, uh, yeah that's
2: right. Spirit. Horrible, horrible. Or Ange- Angelina Jolie was in uh, a couple films too oh my yeah. gosh she, yeah she also
1: ones. was in uh, uh beowulf but i mean the the whole movie kind of uh ended up fitting with with that yeah you know, it's kind of a guilty pleasure mind, mine but still everything's rather stilted in that one they made it look like her yeah
2: absolutely yeah. right
1: i don't know you kind of hear that with some people where they cast actors and they go no we don't want you to do a voice we just want you to be yourself yeah and sometimes it ends up working really well like like Tom Hanks is Woody. I mean, he, you know, he becomes that character. I mean, he's really kind of comes to life with it and everything. But then sometimes when somebody else is just being themselves, it really just ends up falling flat. Like that something about it, like their brain is just not clicking with the world of animation or something. But
2: Well, this was back in the time when, when Walt really was kind of handpicking voice talent and the animators were very involved. I, I talked about Willie Reitherman, that he was kind of a casting director and did a lot of the recording and stuff at the time at the studio. Um, but they, uh, they really were about not necessarily big name talents. You don't see, you know, uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. or whatever. uh Just right, right. throwing out a name of somebody that was big in that era. Because they didn't cast those big kind of larger than life A-list actors and stuff. One, they thought it was idiotic and they'd never be able to record it uh, or afford them. So, a the cost thing was always there. Uh, but two, it was just about who's the best voice. Right. And that really became the philosophy that John Lasseter gravitated to because he came out of this, you know, the late 70s at Disney animation. And so, he gravitated to that when he started Pixar. You don't see those big names so much in Pixar movies. They go after like, you know, B-list actors, TV stars, whoever is right for the part. And those guys get cast. And that's really how, how an animated movie should be cast. But We've kind of lost that. And it became, it was because of Eisner, because of Jeffrey Katzenberg, that star power became and marquee uh, sellability became the main thing when, when you're casting.
1: Yeah, it's a tricky, it's a tricky thing. Uh, I mean, Rod Taylor played Pongo. I mean, I I guess you could argue he was probably the biggest star that they cast for this particular film. I mean, he he was in The Time Machine right before this. He had been in Giant. He ended up in Hitchcock's The Birds shortly after this. Interestingly enough though I didn't realize this he actually was in Open Season uh, you know much later in his life obviously and he was he was Winston Churchill in Inglorious Bastards with Quentin Tarantino
2: Really <laughs> so That's funny. great wow so funny A lot of versatility I could play a dog a bear <laughs> Or Winston Churchill. Churchill. Yeah, (laughs) That's quite a resume.
0: He was a great voice for it, too. And I think that's why, you know, it's interesting that you say that that you made mention of the fact that the voice is something that you really look for. Obviously, you look for it as an animator, but it's funny. You know, we had Steve Miner on the show uh, last month and he made the exact same comment. And of course, he's directing horror films, uh, but he made the exact same comment for young actors is to focus on your voice. Uh, Find a unique voice for yourself and that will take you. Very very far.
2: Uh, I think it's great advice, especially if you want to get into voiceover work. Obviously, if you know you got an ugly mug, then you better you better put it into the voice for sure. (laughs) Says
0: says the the team of podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, animator podcasters. That's right. We didn't get in it for our voices. (laughs) It's it's pretty obvious you guys
2: are better at that part of it. Yeah. 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 You know, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about, if you guys don't mind, is the live action reference because people talk about oh yeah all the time about live action reference and the use of it in these old Disney films. And for a long time, when we first started there, Tom and I, back in the you know the late '80s, early '90s, a live action reference was was kind of a thing of the past, really. But this film did it right in a lot of ways, and I think that's one of the things that I love about um, 101 One Dalmatians* also is that. The use of live-action reference is 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 barely visible in the way that you don't go oh well that that looks just totally outside of the norm of, of an animated cartoon style you know it's too realistic
0: well Tony take a, take a step back and describe what you mean by live-action reference for the people who
2: yeah sure back in the days uh, all the way back to Snow White Walt would bring in um, real actors live-action actors, most of the time from the theater because they were tended to be a little broader. Rarely, but sometimes they would be the voice actors too, acting it out. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Right, like, like Briar uh, Rose. I think in Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, uh, Briar Rose and I think the the gal from Alice in Wonder, Wonderland um, that played Alice. I think she was also the live action reference too. Yeah, Catherine Beaumont, I believe it is. Um, but uh, this, that was kind of something that Walt started and it really helped the animators. They would, they would shoot, not every scene, uh, that would be a little kind of crazy, I think. But, and they would just shoot like from one camera angle, a, a series of scenes, just like a stage play, right? And they would just start to, and they would block out the, 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 the action basically. So just like you would in a live action movie or a theater show, Walt would block it out, the directors would block it out and it became those that filmed uh, live action reference was was helpful to the animator he would get it like a month later it would you would get your scene cast to you okay you're doing this scene of Roger and he's coming down the stairs right and there this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie is in the beginning when Roger's coming down the stairs and he's he's got a little uh, song in his head he's working out you know because he's a songwriter in the movie and he's working through uh, something about Cruella De Vil, Cruella De Vil. I think that's what he's singing as he's bebopping down the stairs. But the the acting is so convincing and so real and yet so cartoony still and in the style of the movie that it's really impressive. So, mm-hmm. Milk Call, I think, was the animator that did that scene. Um, and he had live action reference of an actor coming downstairs and, and doing that action. But he would take not every frame and trace over it, like later films by Don Bluth, if you know who he is. Uh-huh. Uh, Don Bluth used to like trace for Anastasia and some of those early movies that he did. The animators would literally trace over and just kind of change the character design basically. But Milt would actually just look at it and go pick out key poses. Oh, I like how his, he kind of flicks his pencil in the air as he says this this line or he says this little part of the lyrics. Or he would... You know, uh, certain poses or how he kind of hit the steps and kind of a ba-ba-ba-ba, you know, he would peck, pick up little elements and ideas from the live action reference, but really then make it his own. And I think that's key because an animator is an actor, an actor with a pencil in this case. So, it was the live action reference, the vocal actor, the vocal performance, and the animator together that really makes Roger coming down the stairs in this case. And, and that, that process, literally, they would make uh, like photo plates of, uh, of either every frame or every other frame of that live-action film shoot, and they would blow it up and, and peg it so they could put those pictures, basically, they'd be photographs now, of every frame of that action of him coming down the stairs, the actor... And so now they could put paper over that and and draw over it and use it as reference and and put it, make it into Roger. We use that same process all the way up to Pocahontas. Um, we were shooting live action and getting photos, what we'd call the you know the photo pegged uh, stats, and uh, and be able to draw over it. Roger Rabbit used it extensively, uh, but more for being able to know where the live action is and be able to put Roger in that world, draw it on him on a separate piece of paper. So sure, it's sure. all the same process really. Um, and and you're right, Tony, like Tony said, if you just trace it and just kind of tw- change it a little bit into that character, you get a really stiff performance and, it, and it's basically rotoscoping. It's not really using right. live action re- reference. It's more like rotoscoping.
1: And then you end up with, uh, with the, um, the uh, what am I forgetting? Uh, the polar express types of films, you know, when you when you take Ooh, that all the way to yeah. that extreme, you end up at, at that end of things. Well, in yeah, CG that's world. CG, or, or, yeah, or Lord or of the Rings, or the, or the original Lord of the Rings, uh, when they made Ralph, the film. Bakshi. Ralph Bakshi, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: that's what I was thinking. How, oh, yeah, that's that's rotoscoping for sure, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, yeah, what Ralph Bakshi did back in those days was like, yeah, they were totally just tracing over, right. They would put the actors in. The same costumes, and even you know. So if it was supposed to be like a troll or something like that, you'd get a you'd get a little midget and put him in. Sorry, little person, little person. I meant that, um, and put him in a costume, and they would have him run around, and then they would the animators would just trace over that costume. I'm offended. Basically. <laughs> and you know who else is? It's okay. I could say that to Tom because we're twins, but Tom's a little person. <laughs> you, you offended Scott. Scott is there. also offended. <laughs> yeah, Scott. He's my favorite Our little tiny person. little friend. <laughs> Oh uh, well He's in my pocket right now. Come on, Scott. Stop it.
1: Well speaking of live action models, just as just as a a a fun little tidbit side note, um Cruella Deville's live action model was Mary Wicks, who was uh oh, Laverne, yeah. the voice of Laverne in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yeah. And
2: I met her. I was the original supervised and animator of all three of the the gargoyles when mary was on and i went to her first recording session we ultimately had to
1: recast because she died early
2: on in the process mary mary did so
1: sad so yeah yeah so mark davis did uh, cruella and i mean she's yeah kind of kind of big, huh? And kind of an iconic uh, character that uh, he Huge. ended up creating here. And this is right on the heels of Maleficent, another incredibly iconic character that he yeah. that he did. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, I mean, he's uh, and then who who else did he do? He did Tinkerbell, right? Tinkerbell yeah.
2: um let's he's see. He's known for Bambi. Tinkerbell and, um, and
1: everybody knows Tinkerbell has a dark dark side, <laughs> right?
2: <Yeah. there. laughs> but but he also did Alice in Wonderland. You know, he and Milt. Uh, Tom, this is going back to what Tom was saying about how Milton Mark uh, Davis were were very close friends because they were the guys that because they drew so well and they were such great draftsmen that Walt would always give them the, the really realistic characters mm-hmm. and they hated it because they wanted to have fun and do all these cartoony characters and sidekicks oftentimes but they tended to do you know Briar Rose and things like that so Mark also did um, Briar Rose and Princess Aurora, Sleeping Beauty, whatever you want to call her. Uh, she's got all three names in the movie. But yeah, he did he did her also. And Bambi. He, he literally was such a good artist that um, he was a story artist and he was doing concept art of Bambi. A lot of very realistic uh, drawings of uh, ban- uh, deer anatomy and things like that because he was so uh, well trained in uh, animal anatomy too, even before he came to the studio. Uh, he was a Tr- very uh, traditionally trained artist and painter um, that when when Walt would see his Bambi storyboards he'd say I want it to look just like that he, and then he got Milt and those guys to say you got to train him to become an animator so they they yeah, literally well, trained how him how to animate. they taught him how to animate just so, because Walt wanted to see his drawings on, on the screen not just in the storyboards they were so good and so yeah I mean, this is fast-forwarding many years later, and Mark finally got his chance. de Deville is like a dream, an animator's dream for sure. Uh, with how caricatured her face is. I mean, it's literally a skull.
1: All those cheekbones
2: are crazy. Yeah,
0: <laughs> cheekbones
2: <laughs> out to here. Yeah, it's crazy. And yet, I have man. I have a Xerox copy. Speaking of Xerox, Xerox off Xerox. I can't even say the word xerox Let me get, let
0: me get Scott. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) Scott will get it. Um, No, but speaking of Xerox, I have a copy of, a Xerox copy of an entire scene, the very first scene of Cruella DeVille when she, when she bursts through the door and you first meet her and she said, puppies, and something like that, you know, did I hear puppies? And, and she's got this huge fur coat on, right? It's an all white fur coat, you know, this is before she gets the idea she's, you know, now she wants to get in. Fur is too boring for her. And really the plot is, I you know, I want Dalmatian fur because I hear that's the best. She's like the original
1: hipster. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. That's right. That's right. Coffee, it's
1: got to be single, you know, bean coffee. Well, yeah. she smokes pink cigarettes, so we know she's hoity-toity, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, she
2: is. You know, and, and in the movie, she's actually uh, Anita's uh, college – she's old, her yeah. old college roommate. Yeah, you forget Which that. I find very – that's the movie I really want to yeah, see. Right. Yes. <laughs> they call exact days? thing. and Cruella like in college. Yeah, uh,
0: you know what? That actually makes it a, a much more interesting kind of story too, because Cruella has such a a human kind of backstory. You know, it makes her a much more a, a much sort of broader tapestry or broader brush to paint with, and much more interesting. You almost see, and I don't know, I, I may be watching into things a little bit too closely, but it almost feels like as she derails as a character the animation of her character derails along with it like by the time she wrecks <laughs> the car yeah. at the end she's just like sketched like there's no we don't even need to we're phoning oh. it in she's her, <laughs> eyes, are <laughs> all the time. Yeah. her eyes are those yeah. like
1: hypnotized yeah, eyes right. like the, you know she's oh a yeah, metaphor really, it is broken I think they down they're running
2: out of money towards the end of the film really They put broad. so much energy into those first opening sequences that you're right it, towards the end of the film from a production's uh, production standpoint production value it does kind of fall apart. There's more limited animation to it. There's like these weird hold point hold poses for where it freezes and her eyes are going around. It's like what is that? <laughs> yeah. What what movie is this now? And you
0: know, I, I want to be respectful of your time, guys, too. But I know we're running out of it. But I I wonder if you could comment <laughs> just a little bit on the the car, like how they did the cars yeah. using the model straight oh, to yeah. plate. I, that is fascinating. Can you talk about that? It, yeah. it really
2: is. They they literally and you've seen. There's pictures out there, and it was in the the Illusion Life, Frank and Ollie's book, um, and they show a picture of this car. They made they actually created a 3D model, not computer model, but an actual model of the like out of cardboard or foam core or something. Right? Yeah. It looks like foam core. It's like all white or they painted it white. And then they would literally go along every edge and paint that edge black. Um, so it looked like it was a drawing basically of this car. And then they would, and I correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think they were doing stop motion. I think they were, li- they were doing actual, uh, real time, um, with poles and stuff like that. Almost like it was a puppet. Um, Having it yeah. go up and down and, and and like be on a road and and go up a hill and they create a little bit of a set and like if I remember right the snow is even uh, when when the crashes in the snow you it's see like the sand snow yeah. Come. yeah yeah it pops up like that was actually on the set too and so they they shoot they shot live action basically of this model doing all the actions and then composited it they they what then probably use zircon formation whatever we call it. I like like xerography Tom it's xerography yeah they would photocopy those onto the cells and now we had they had the emotion and then they would animate the characters uh, to that or they they'd actually photocopy it onto paper um, then animate the characters to it add them to it on another piece of paper and then this is all this is all because they were too lazy to actually draw a copy. <laughs> You know, okay. No, so, they were all too lazy to create computers to animate in a computer. <laughs> This is like a guy sitting in his his, uh, recliner chair going, I can't reach the remote control, so I'm going to make a rocket ship (laughs) to fly me over there. (laughs) It it does sound like that. It's funny, though. It's such
1: a a fascinating tool to have integrated into this. It it, it makes you wonder, like, what was the intention of doing this, where they did Walt and Ub, who kind of helped come up with that. Were they talking, going, yeah. what can we, how can we create a, a more... Um, solid uh, three dimensional car that doesn't you know doesn't have that slight uh, frame shifting when you change perspectives on it and stuff. Well, like that. Well, I mean, that. this like... is totally a
2: precursor to three D animation. Computer oh, absolutely, animation, right, right, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, um, yeah. Because obviously, if computer animation had been around, and that didn't get introduced into Disney films until Great Mouse Detective, by the way, that in the uh, Gears, uh, the Clockworks, uh, when they have the fight at the end of the movie. That it was, was in the London. That tower. was the very first computer animation. I things. thought it well,
1: was. Did they use some in the cauldron in, for the actual cauldron in the Black Cauldron? I thought I read that. I don't think so. You know what? Nobody watches that. that one. So either. nobody.
2: <laughs> <thought it was laughs> yeah. yeah. Huh, what movie? That could have been. That could have been very unlazy effects animators that actually drew it. So I'm going to say that. I think they did Ross the model the thing. Time. What they did in Hundred One with creating the model and the whole bit and and live action shooting it. They did it again in a couple other movies. It could have been Block Cauldron also. I'm not sure. I would have, yeah, haven't seen that movie since I was a teenager. So. <laughs> I don't know. It's outlawed, I think. They, yeah, I think they put it in the Disney vaults. vault. never to be seen again. Right, see right. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I took go to Russia yeah. to see it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have a bunch of copies. There. Yeah, yeah, it lives there. It's like their
1: favorite movie. It's buried with all the, the uh, copies of that E.T. video game. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. I've heard i about saw that, that documentary. Yeah, that was fun. Oh, the yeah. yeah, the whole. What was that? What what was that? An Atari game, right, Pete? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, was a, it,
0: a, And it, it. They buried him in the a a desert documentary. somewhere.
1: Yeah, I saw that documentary. There's
0: the whole documentary about it. Right, right, right. You can can see them uncover it.
1: So moving forward, uh, you know, what I think is interesting, this is kind of stepping away from the film now and and, uh, after its release and everything, this actually won a BAFTA award for best animated film. Apparently, apparently the British were way ahead of us as far as nominating things for animated, or even having a whole category for animated film. Granted, it won against uh, two short films or a short film called The Do-It-Yourself Cartoon Kick, kit which was a six minute bob godfrey short and then another one huh. called for better for worse which i couldn't find any information about but the the bob godfrey <laughs> short looks awfully like uh, terry Gilliam style and you know, like that i don't even know what you call uh-huh. that kind of animation but it's just like and like paper almost, cut out yeah yeah paper, yeah, cut, right. out yeah, paper cut out sort of thing so that's uh, that's what it was up against um luckily it did oh, win gosh. so so it's got that Me, going for it the
2: technical term for that is poop animation <laughs> you, just, you just poop it out. Well, oh. well, yeah, as Jeffrey Katzenberg once told us um, when he was uh, comparing Pocahontas to the Lion King, he said, I-, I don't really care about awards. I don't want the Oscar. I want the Bank of America award. For the most money made. <laughs> and he did it. Wow. Uh,
1: he did. Yes indeed. And so
2: and that's what Walt got with the 101 Dalmatians. He might not have 101 Dalmatians didn't score maybe, you know, best song and things like that. There was only three songs in the whole movie. Yeah, right. But um but you know, they did they did win the Bank of America Award. So it kept the kept the studio open. absolutely yeah. it,
1: it uh, proved that Disney could make uh, movies on the cheap. Um, just to go into the numbers here, Sleeping Beauty was made for six million dollars and this one was actually made for four million. Um, in today's dollars that's a bit over 32 million. So it's still a pretty decent budget. now um the the what it actually made it gets a little messy because when these movies get re-released, I mean this had um, re-releases in 69, 79 85 and 91. All of the box office receipts kind of get a little jumbled, but what I was able to find is on its initial release, this movie made 14 million domestically, which is about 113 million in today's dollars, and it was the international top earner, and I believe it still is for 1961. So, wow, that's amazing. Uh, so, yeah, it did pretty well for itself, um, and with all of the different re-releases that it's had, it ended up making a total gross of just under $61 million, which is almost $223 million adjusted. And we do this little thing on the show, an adjusted profit per finished minute, um, which is how much it really kind of ended up making per minute of film that was released. It made just over $3.3 million adjusted profit per finished minute. So spread out across five releases and uh, you know, with these numbers muddled, even with all that, it's pretty clear that Disney uh, had found a way to kind of keep the animation studios afloat and, uh, you know, make some money while while uh, cranking these out.
2: You know, Andy, I will say this. I don't care anything about those numbers. What impresses me is I'm watching you say those numbers. I don't think you're reading anything. You were just talking that whole time. Yeah, do you have a script on your on your on your monitor or something? Just like taped on there.
0: (laughs) He's just that brilliant. He's a budget savant.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty impressive. Knew all the dates (laughs) that went along with it. I'm just like, I'm trying to remember what I had. I don't remember what I had for breakfast. Tony, correct me if I'm wrong. Is uh, was Sleeping Beauty the movie right before Hundred One? It was. Yes. Yeah, two years. Okay, because that's what I remember the story being. Is why this film was so important that it was done quicker it was less expensive because sleeping beauty almost broke the bank with them yeah, yeah that was now that was a film that took them like four years if i remember right or or longer it was a and it was a long gestation it was very painful uh every line had to be perfect it was you know you look at that film it's amazing to see that these two came out back to back basically well, and, and so, yeah, and, and they also created a whole new um, format for it. You remember it was like a ultra-long yeah. uh, frame? Cinema, I forget what CinemaScope, it was called. I think. Yeah. It was CinemaScope. Yeah. I think it was the only animated feature by Disney ever done in CinemaScope. Um, and because of that, there was just more real estate for painters to paint backgrounds and animators to fill with characters. And oh, my gosh, that decision alone was a budget crippler. And then for them to turn around on 101 Dalmatians go, ding, how about xerography? Xerocography. We'll use that. (laughs) uh, Photosynthesis. Let's just make (laughs) up. I don't know. (laughs) One last, I'll tell you guys one last little story about 101 Dalmatians that, uh, may or may not be interesting, but it's, it's close for Tom and I. It might be true. Is that, um, (laughs) yeah, Tom doesn't even know what I'm going to say. Um, In the in the movie Hundred One Dalmatians, you remember there was something called the Twilight Bark, and this was the communication form that the the dogs all had, right? So they would bark one to another and one to another to get a message uh, over miles, right? So um, the Twilight Bark was the name when Tom and I were working at the Disney MGM Studios, the new animation studio in Florida, Orlando, Florida. um, We had a little newsletter, and it was called the Twilight Bark. So it was our way of getting, you know, insider information and and news about what's going on in feature animation for all of us. Not to correct you too much, but I will. The Twilight (laughs) Bark was was the California newsletter for animation. We had the Rabbit Rabbit in Florida. Oh, I forgot. And I still don't know why it was called the Rabbit Rabbit, but it was based on Roger Rabbit, I think the rabbit rabbit yeah it was based on roger rabbit and it was it was also an english term because max howard was english he's the guy that ran the studio and and it, it meant gossip. I think it was like an English slang for gossip news or something. Yeah, like that. your English listeners can tell us. Twilight Bark was the newsletter that they had for many many years at the
1: Burbank, California studio. Thank you, Tom. Just kind of keep you straight.
0: What do you are we uh, are we ready
1: to do to do this, Andy? Are we ready to rank it? I think so. Do you guys have any last comments about the movie, or is that it? Oh, and we could talk 101 One forever, but we could. Yes, we could. I, I think we
2: covered everything that nobody would want to hear ever again
1: well that's our goal <laughs> yeah and one last comment that i want to throw your throw out there which i think is interesting you know disney has these nine old men I, i'm still not sure why some people got to be in that club and some people didn't but of the nine old men only one did not work on this film from what i could tell and it was ward kimball and i don't know if it was because he was writing that's
2: right well, he was probably off doing tv stuff and his own short films and stuff because ward Ward kind of went in a different direction after a while, and he wanted to do his own thing in TV and stuff. I think that's what he yeah. did. And, and really, had he worked on this film, I bet you he would have got Cruella and DeVille. That's kind of up his alley. No, he would have got Horace and Jasper. Oh, Horace yeah. and Jasper, one That's of the, true. Or the sidekick animals or something. Right, right, right. That would have been him.
1: It's interesting. I uh, It's, uh, it's a, a fun little tidbit. I know that he was working on uh, the live-action Babes in Toyland just before this so so maybe the, maybe he was tied up in
2: that yeah he got into film live action and then and then they're doing directing short films like
1: uh to whistle plunk and boom and well anyway yeah i guess i guess it's time we're gonna uh, we're gonna rank this thing
0: we're gonna head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel if you actually if you scroll down in your show notes you'll find the link that'll jump you right over to this very film 101 dalmatians in flick chart and you're gonna rank it add it to your library we'd love to hear how it stacks up uh, against our ranking right here.
1: First up, we've got 101 Dalmatians versus Mad Max. <laughs> the,
2: n- the new Mad Max?
1: This, this is the, the original? original, the very yeah. first. Oh, uh, 101 Dalmatians. First uh, yeah, I'm going to go 101, yeah. I'm 101 Dalmatians also, Pete. What about you?
0: So this is, this is I'm also 101, and uh, this is a, a principled uh, victory. This uh, Mad Max is right in the middle of our catalog, so that puts it in the top half of all the movies that we've done. Oh, that's good. right. Okay. That's right. All right,
1: here we go. Next one up we have 101 Dalmatians or Scarlet Street, Fritz Lang's Film Noir. Oh, never see know it. that
0: one. You got me. Oh, it's fantastic. You should definitely see it, but I'm gonna give it 101 on this one. I would watch 102
1: first. Yeah. Me too, 101 Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians or Aliens. Oh.
2: Oh, the sequel. Yeah, aliens. Getting, uh... Uh, I'm gonna go aliens on that one. Really? Um <laughs> I know. I'm doing Cast 101. I'm, I, yeah, I'm going 101 on that. It's more classic for sure. I am aliens on this one.
0: This is, this is a movie of, of a uh, movie of my heart right there is aliens. I got to pick aliens. That's what? Right.
2: I'm the only one. I can't yeah. believe that.
0: Oh, <laughs> loser. It's my favorite
2: Disney movie. Mama yeah. loved me better. Yeah. Mama loved me better. <laughs> she didn't know the real you, Tony.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Next up, we have 101 Dalmatians or the good, the bad and the ugly.
2: Oh, uh, I'm going to say 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, I am too. I'm sticking with it. Sticking with Disney.
1: Uh, oh. I'm going to say "Goes bad, and the ugly, Pete. Yeah, if we end up tying, we have to do a, a rock, paper, scissors to decide.
0: Which is almost oh. more painful
1: than the tie a- itself.
0: <laughs> I'm, I stand with the Bancroft brothers. Right Walt,
1: Walt Paraguay would, would cuss you out <laughs> and say thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, 101 Dalmatians or Kramer versus Kramer.
0: Definitely a hundred one Dalmatians. Yeah, I'm definitely yeah, hundred one too. Here. Yeah.
1: Same here. Yeah, That's uh all right. Four of us going that way. Hundred one Dalmatians or the Fisher King.
2: Hundred one Dalmatians.
1: Yeah, I'm still hundred one. <sighs> I think I'm Fisher King. It's awfully close to my heart.
2: Yeah. No.
1: All right. Here's how this works. It is a tough uh, one. One of you versus Andy, and you you do uh, you just count
0: to three. One, two, three. All right, then... Tom.
1: Okay. We'll we're, we'll do it. All right. One, two, three, rock. Well, oh. Gotta... And then scissors. What scissors. scissors. Yeah. You're right. Well, our listeners <laughs> can't
0: tell that actually uh, that Tom had did do scissors. He did. Yes. Okay. I did it early,
2: too. So he saw what I had and then still said rock. <laughs> He's like looking at it going, uh, rock? <laughs> rock would kill <laughs> so that. Do it again. Uh all right, I'm not even going to do the video. Of this I'm not going to move. This is okay. great podcast. Okay, right? okay. One, One two, two, three. Paper.
1: paper tie on paper. All right, okay. Uh, let's do it again. Dang it! One, two, One, two three, three. Scissors. scissors. Ah! <laughs> oh, you're kidding! Me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here All right. we go again. One, One two, two,
2: three. three oh, scissors. my works. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I feel like we have to give it to Ub Iwerks because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Yeah, Ub one. Ub Iwerks trumps that's, everything. That's uh, all there. like, call there. Ub's like Popeye, you can take That's right. Ideas. That's right. <laughs> yeah. The man who invented everything. Uh 101 Dalmatian's or uh awfully different tone. Apocalypse now.
2: <laughs> oh. Oh gosh. I mean, how do you um, It's like two different strategies this, this is why this is I'm going to I'm going to say 101 Dalmatians still.
1: 101 Dalmatians for me too. I would say Apocalypse Now is, is the stronger and better film, but I would definitely put 101 Dalmatians on first.
0: Yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll give it to 101. I, I'm- and here's the thing.
1: You're on a desert island. How
2: depressing would it be to watch 101? I mean, <laughs> Apocalypse Now yeah, over you're right. and over again.
0: On premise, you're absolutely right. We have to wipe that from
2: there. Unfair scenario. You'd have to have watched when Dalmatians as kind of a, a mental sorbet after you watched Apocalypse Now, if that was the case, yeah. <laughs>
1: right. It's the after dinner mint for you, right? <laughs> it really is, yeah. Well, all right. Well, that leaves uh, 101 Dalmatians at spot 36 on our chart, uh, smack dab between wow. aliens and apocalypse wow. now. So, I, you know, I wow. think it did pretty well for itself. I mean, this is out of yeah. 200, almost 280 movies. So I think that's a, a pretty solid place for it. I think that's a good spot. Yeah, a good spot In a thousand
0: for it. years when the aliens are right. excavating our devastated planet and they find the flick chart ranking and wonder how the hell did 101 Dalmatians end up between aliens and apocalypse now? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) on any list at all
1: (laughs) well we do a a, a star rating also out of five stars over on letterboxd.com slash the next reel out of five stars what do you guys uh give this film is it a five star film for you or what do you say
2: oh no i wouldn't go five
1: star this is tony i'm gonna go
2: you know i'll go four though absolutely yeah i was gonna say four too because to me five is like wow that's like the top 10 you know
0: so let yeah. me just ask while we're while we're doing this, what is what is a, a quintessential five star uh, Disney film for you guys? Oh, Disney oh, film! Disney. Gosh.
2: Well, did you see Mulan? Yeah. <laughs> Come on.
0: <laughs> Mulan is
2: way <laughs> up there. Yeah. Uh, oh, did I mention I directed that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you do. You, you hadn't yet. That's amazing um <laughs> no, I'll, I'll definitely say lion king I, i'll go lion king though for okay. sure okay yeah
0: i put that as a and, and i would say the incredibles i know it's pixar but I, um, yeah it's an easy one for me that's great okay interesting all right
1: uh, andy for me it's a four star too and i'm at four star also so look at that straight fours across the board for this
0: yeah what a great pick you got. i had no idea we'd have such an awesome conversation about this movie oh, okay yeah. me, i'm curious what do you what's your position on uh have you seen moana the latest Yet what's your what's your take on it on the uh, the progress the march of progress on animation Uh
2: it's a good movie. Um, there's some some little weird things about it, some funky fly story things, but uh in general, a uh, really good heartfelt movie. Actually a very simple story, which I appreciated about it. Um they kind of kept it simple and and you just got into the characters. And that you don't see that very often where it's a actually a very small cast of characters, really just two main characters for most right. of the film. And you just stick with them. I'm just going to jump in and say, go a little broader than that and say that Disney's got their their groove back. Uh, uh, I got to say, you know, there was a time when, when Pixar was coming up and they were doing great things that Disney started going the other way. The Disney features of Meet the Robinsons and Sweating Bullets and things like that were like, oh, my gosh, what's, you know, pull up, pull up, please and uh it took them a while to kind of get their groove going but um yeah disney's back and it's got its mojo i'm i'm really impressed with everything they've they've been doing lately and they just keep getting better and stronger and better and stronger moana is definitely an example of that
0: have you guys
1: Seen it? Oh, yeah. I love it. Although I've got to say, and this is is kind of funny, um, the film that my family and I love, the animated film that has come out that has kind of taken all of us uh, as the one that we really, really love, uh, which is completely something I never, ever would have expected, is Trolls. I
2: I knew you were going to say Trolls. I knew it because I, I feel the same way. Tom hasn't seen it yet. I haven't
1: uh, seen uh, it. Trolls is a
2: very fun, entertaining movie, isn't it? Actually, I've heard that it's
1: just like this this magical film that is just like. I mean, you've got talking clouds, and you've got like you know, pe- yeah, ant- weird creatures pooping cupcakes, and I mean, it's just. Hey, most- spoiler oh, alert! <laughs> wow, that's, that's, spoiler, in spoiler. that's in the trailer. That's in the trailer.
2: You know what I want to see is Mike Mitchell. This is going to go full full circle for you guys. I want to see Mike Mitchell, the director of Trolls, direct the college version of Cruella DeVille and Anita oh, together. sorority go. sisters. Hello, <laughs> Five. <fight>. Sorority <laughs> sisters. 101 uh, late nights or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what word it would be called. Right, That, I would, like be so fun. that would be so fun. I would so totally fun. see it. And they're like yeah. frenemies, you know, through the whole movie. <laughs> it'd be, it'd yeah. be like uh, Wicked. Well, it's like you Wicked, know? You, yeah, you, yeah, it's like yeah, Wicked. Yeah, exactly.
1: It would be uh, wicked. Yeah. It would be just like oh, somebody totally needs to do that. Well, you guys, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Where should people find you? And, and you know, what are you guys, can they look up what you guys are working on? Where do you guys hang out online? Other than obviously you have your podcast and everything, but. Uh,
2: yeah, definitely check out the Bancroft Brothers Animation Podcast. It's on topbyapro.com, topbyapro.com, or um, it's on iTunes also. Um, you can find both Tom and I on social media, on Facebook um, where we have a page that we share called the Bancroft Brothers, we do a lot of updates of artwork that we're working on or film and projects that we're and just thoughts on animation and xerography are on the Facebook page, yeah, okay. and then uh, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter on Instagram I'm at Pumbaguy, and Pumba is the character from Lion King and also has two A's P-A-P-U-M-B-A-A, P-U-M-B-A-A Pumbaguy. and then I'm on Twitter at PumaGuy one And I'm on Instagram. I'm at TomBancroft1 and Twitter, TomBancroft1. And yeah, so
1: and, but follow our Facebook page too, ben, the Bancroft Bros. All right,
0: we'll put all those in the show notes. Uh,
1: show notes, Easy access. And anything else you guys are working on that you want to plug? Or is it mostly just the podcast yeah, right now? I
2: have a film coming out uh, next year, if all goes well, with Distributor and such. It's, a, it's an independent film that I've been working on for a couple of years with a good buddy of mine. And it's called Animal Crackers. And we have an all-star cast, guys that have done voices for Disney, such as my good friend Patrick Warburton is in it, and Danny DeVito, and Gilbert Gottfried, um, and Harvey Firestein. But including, it also has Har- um, uh, Sir Ian McKellen does a voice, Gandalf, wow. um, and... And John Krasinski and his wife, Emily Blunt, play the two main characters. So I'm really excited about Animal Crackers coming out next year. Look for now it. that's co-directed by a guy named Scott. So that must be where he came <laughs> in to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Hey, Scott. Scott. Now we've gone Scott full yeah, he's, yeah. a, <laughs> he's a tiny little guy. Um, and I'm just doing secret stuff, uh, some TV series that I'm developing right now. But also uh, I'm teaching at Lipscomb University. So if you want to learn animation to Lipscomb Animation at Lipscomb University in Nashville.
1: Well, thank you guys so much for coming out and joining us tonight to talk about 101 Dalmatians. We really appreciate it. It was
2: a pleasure. It was fun, you guys. You guys have a, you got a great podcast and you guys are so professional. You are. We're, we're so impressed.
1: We got goals. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. It means a lot coming from you guys.
2: Hashtag goals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for everyone else out there, we hope you enjoyed the show. And if you like what you heard, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Google+, Instagram, Pinterest, Letterboxd, Flickchart, and YouTube and of course don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and comment really does help more people find us thanks again for tuning in and until next time I've got a dog barking out back and I need to go listen in I think it was one long howl and a yip or was it two yips I'm gonna use you to be my And we're out. That's the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's how
2: you guys exit the show. What no, is that from? That was from 101 Domations. <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> that was the Twilight Park, stupid.
0: Oh, <laughs> I, you know, it was that newsletter oh, that you oh, never actually. I don't wrote.
2: know. <laughs> it, it sounded so scripted. It oh, sounded my like gosh. so scripted. I thought, did Andy make that up? Or that must <laughs> be, it sounded like a Quentin Tarantino line. Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot the exclamation point.
0: <laughs> Plus, by using those links to buy your next read, Apple and Amazon show us a little bit of love, which allows you to support our family of shows with minimal effort.
1: TheNextReel.com slash Originals. It's a great way to support the show and find your next page turner.
0: That's right. Head over to the slash Originals to pick out your next read and dig in today.